Do you ever think God's grace means it doesn't really matter if I sin because God will forgive me anyway? I expect we all do at some times, even if it isn't consciously thought out. I expect we all have something like this. There's a sin and, well, I wouldn't do that if I really thought it would take me to hell. But because I think it won't, well, I'll do it anyway because I'm forgiven, aren't I? I'm justified. I'm accepted. It's going to be all right. Does, Does that sin really matter? Will the sin really bring any harm? Hosea chapter 2 says, yes, it does matter. Yes, it does do harm. Because sin doesn't only break God's law, it breaks God's heart. Do you think like this ever? I've gone too far. I've sinned that sin so many times. Oh, I can't pray now. Oh, I can't be forgiven or accepted now. I can't ask God and expect God to give anything good to me. Can you, if you have that attitude, expect God to give anything good to you? Well, Hosea too says, yes, you can. Sin breaks God's heart because he is love. And because he's love, he is ready to welcome those who are humbly repentant. So let's hear that from Hosea too. Would you turn to that book again? I hope you can remember where to find Hosea chapter 2. Let's turn to it now. And we're going to spend... All of our sermon this evening in that chapter. We're going to take the chapter in two halves and for each half we're first going to go through the verses and then we're going to see what that half means for us. So here's the first part. The first half, sin breaks God's heart. This is verses 2 to 13, sin breaks God's heart. Now, I don't think I've ever watched EastEnders, but I think I've got a fairly good idea that it is full of relationship breakups and people being unfaithful to each other and families fighting each other. And so imagine one of those fighting families. Imagine a family where the wife has cheated on her husband. Time after time, she's not come home at night. She's been in another man's bed. And the husband has pleaded with her and he's tried to reason with her and he's tried to talk things through and mend it, but she just won't listen. And so eventually that husband says to their children who are in their early 20s, won't you speak to your mother? Won't you try to get through to her and show her she's devastating our family? Well, that's what we've got in Hosea chapter 2, verse 2. Let's have a look at verse 2. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Here, God is the husband and he's rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt and he has entered into a covenant with them, which is very much like a marriage promise. He would care for her and she was to be loyal to him. And he did care for Israel and he brought them into the promised land, gave them a good home, provided for them. He was a good husband. But Israel was not a good wife. Now in Hosea's time, she was a cheating wife. And that's described in verse five. Verse five, their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. In other words, adultery. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my wine, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. You see, the Israelites thought we will give other gods a try. 
we'll keep hold of a bit of worship of the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But we'll give the other gods a try too. see if they can make us richer, see if they can make us more prosperous. And so they worship the idols of the nations around and particularly this idol called Baal. Well, I've always called him Baal, but I'm told Baal is more accurate. He was this model of a bull who was a fertility idol. And it was reckoned if you worshipped him certain ways, you made your crops and your wife fertile. And that's what they wanted. And God pleaded with his wife Israel. He sent prophet after prophet to warn, to invite them back, to offer forgiveness. But she wouldn't listen. And so now he, he appeals to the children, rebuke your mother. In other words, he's saying to individual Israelites, because they weren't all idolaters, he's saying to the faithful Israelites, won't you speak to the nation? Speak up and say to the nation, look what you're doing. Look where it's leading you. Tell them their sins and urge repentance. And one of the ways that those individual Israelites were to speak to the nations was to warn them what God would do. What would God do? Well, he describes it in verse three onwards. So let's have a look at a few of those descriptions. First of all, he would take away the care that he had given. Verse three. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. What's going on here? Well, Ezekiel chapter 16 helps because it's very similar. And Ezekiel 16 says, imagine walking through a field. And to your shock, as you walk through the field, you come across a newborn baby lying there in the field. It's so newborn, it still has the blood on it, not washed off. It still has its umbilical cord, not cut. It's stark naked and it's lying there dying because it's been abandoned. And Ezekiel 16 says, that's Israel. And God saw her and pitied her. And gave her life and took her in and cared for her and provided for her until she grew into a, a woman whom he married. He took as his wife. But now in verse three, he says, I'm going to take away my care. You're going to be back the abandoned baby you once were. He also warns, I'll take away the blessings of the covenant. This is verse nine. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. Very similar picture. But here the emphasis is on the blessings of the covenant are going to be taken back. You see, God entered that covenant like a marriage promise. That he was going to care for her. If you are loyal to me, I'll give you peace and prosperity. He doesn't say that to every individual Christian, but he said it to Israel as a nation. But he also said, if you're not loyal to me, I'll take them away. And Israel had been the opposite to loyal, a serial adulterer. And so God, after so much patience, was going to take away those covenant blessings. How would he do it? Well, if back in those days you were going to invade another country, what time of year would you do it? The classic time of year to invade was harvest time. 
Because as your army advanced, it didn't have to carry supplies. It got food. There was food there. It's harvest time. It could help itself and feed itself. That helped your army. And it also inflicted maximum devastation on your enemy. And that's what Assyria did to Israel. It invaded at the time of maximum harm and stripped Israel of her grain and wine, her wool and linen. And that's what God would do. He was behind it and he would also shame her as he did it. Verse 10. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I remember reading in the newspapers about a woman whose husband had been cheating on her and going off with another woman. That doesn't normally get into the newspapers, but it got into the newspapers because he would go off in his fancy sports car, in his trendy clothes, and he wouldn't listen to her. So one day... When he went to go off to another woman, he found she had cut up all his clothes and she had poured cans of paint over his fancy sports car. Well, it's quite amusing to us. I doubt it was to him. He wouldn't listen and so she was shaming him. And God in verse 10 is doing that to Israel. Now, it's all pretty drastic. It's drastic in the description and it was drastic in the execution of it when Assyria came into Israel why would God do it verse 7 gives us a clue verse 7 she will chase after her lovers but not catch them she will look for them but not find them then she will say I will go back to my husband as at first for then I was better off than now God is doing it to bring her to her senses because he wants her back. It's not spiteful hate. It's the last resort of a patient God who loves his wife. And, and he's been speaking gently for a long time, but he wants her to realize she's better off with him. And she'll, he'll do what it takes to try to get her back. Now, I wonder, can you think of something like this in the teachings of Jesus? Children, do you know the parables Jesus told? Can you think of a parable that has something like this in it? There was a son who left his father and off he goes and all seems well until there's famine and he's run out of money. And then what does it say? He came to his senses. I'd be better off back with my father. And in the story, it sounds like the father was just watching, helplessly waiting. Well, in the story, he was just helplessly waiting. But Hosea tells us God the Father is not just watching and waiting helplessly. God the husband brings into our lives things to prompt us to come to our senses. Because sin doesn't just break his law, it breaks his heart. Well, there we've gone through very rapidly and missing out a lot, verses 2 to 13. Secondly, let's have a think what that means for us. Secondly, what does all of this mean for us? Now, before we rush into getting individual and personal, remember who this was first written to. 
Who was it written to? Or actually spoken to first. It was spoken to Israel as a nation. Israel as a community. What's the equivalent of that community today? It's the community of the church. Israel was the Old Testament church. And the church today can be like Israel, sadly unfaithful to God. The church, which is described as the bride of the Lord Jesus, can sadly be an unfaithful bride. In fact, the New Testament is explicit about that. Children, do you know what the last book of the Bible is? It's that strange and difficult book, Revelation. And it includes letters Jesus wrote to his bride, the church. Seven churches, in fact, seven local churches. Some were doing well, some were not. One of those churches is told, you've left your first love. You're not loving me as you used to. Repent or I'm going to come and take action that puts an end to you as a church. That's very much like Hosea too. Another of those churches is told, you're two-timing me. You've got some faith and love, but you're also going along with an immoral false teacher. And Jesus says to that church, you're two-timing me. I'm going to kill that false teacher. So you separate from her, leave her and come back to me. Then letter, in fact, appeals to, I know some of you are not going along with her. I know some of you are faithful to me, so keep that up. Do you see, that's very much like Hosea too. The church can be like Israel, the unfaithful wife. And that means sometimes we as individuals must do verse two. Verse two, rebuke your mother. You could say the mother church, rebuke her. Sometimes we need to speak up if the church is being unfaithful to God. We need to speak up if the church is siding with society instead of siding with God to call people in society to repent. We need to speak up if the church is becoming self-serving and self-promoting instead of God-serving and Christ-promoting. I suppose an obvious example of this would be on the 31st of October, 1517, a monk in Germany nailed to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg 95 theses, 95 ideas of things the church needed to reconsider because it had turned away from God. Sadly, the church didn't reconsider and that monk, Martin Luther, continued to speak out and to rebuke the church for being corrupt and teaching things that were false. And he did it even though it risked his life. Now, that's, that's a big, obvious example. And usually things are not that obvious and big. So it needs a lot of wisdom to know when should we speak up and how should we speak up. So I'm not asking for a barrage of criticism to come my way now. We need wisdom to know, is this something where the church is being unfaithful or is this just something I personally don't like and uh, um, it's a difference of opinion and how to do it? We need wisdom to know what about the wider church in the UK? When is that our responsibility? And, and if it is, how would we actually speak up about if it's being unfaithful? But speak up we must if the church 
is being unfaithful to God. What, what, what about us individually? What does Hosea chapter 2, the first half, mean for you individually? Well, you were made for relationship with God. A relationship that's like the wife and husband relationship. Relying on him, cared for by him, respecting him, enjoying him. But instead, have you thought... The way I'm cared for is by me being successful, by the money that I earn, by me setting the agenda for my life and doing it my way. That's the way I'm cared for. And the way I get enjoyment is through my possessions and my leisure time and my interests. God, if he's there, is to be held at arm's length and sometimes prayed to to give me things. But enjoying God, no. Well, if that's your attitude, God can easily do Hosea 2 to you. He can take those lovers you're relying on away from you. He just has to bring in something called COVID-19. And it can easily wreck your finances. I mean, you can't even do those leisure things that you were doing. Will it make you come to your senses? Will it make you say something like this? I've, the things I've based my life on are frail and they easily fail. God, I need you. Do you know the individual Christian can also sometimes be in the first half of Hosea too. Now, we have to be very careful how, about this. The Christian is not a cheating wife just by falling for a sin. Just by weakness and failing the christian is is even not a cheating wife just by repeatedly falling for a sin that's bad but it doesn't make you a cheating wife it doesn't put you in hosea 2 the first half remember israel had been repeatedly warned and had blocked her ears closed her eyes and refused to listen that's a different matter from falling for a sin, even repeatedly. It was a refusal to take correction. But sadly, sometimes Christians won't take correction. Sometimes, sadly, Christians block their ears and close their eyes and won't listen and, and insist on carrying on their way. And sometimes Christians drift badly. I wonder, children, do you know the story of Lot? It's a funny name, isn't it? Lot, he was Abraham's nephew. And he decided to go and live in a town called Sodom because it was rich. And he was more concerned to get its riches than he was concerned to avoid its sins. And that was, that was the start of a bad drift that resulted in Lot and his family getting an awful lot of trouble. Sometimes God brings the wandering Christian back through troubles. The word for that is chastisement. We call it chastisement. God bringing us back through troubles to awaken us. Sometimes God brings the wandering Christian back through shame. We've got that in verse 10, haven't we? Shame. Sometimes God does that. He does it through his church. We call it church discipline. That's when someone won't listen to correction. And so the church separates from that person, makes him feel ashamed because we want him to see sense and we want him back in fellowship with us. 
Now, do notice, not all trouble is chastisement. That, that must be said. Not all trouble is chastisement. Chastisement comes to those who won't listen to correction. So if you're not listening to correction from the Bible, or even from the church, possibly, you need to change your attitude. Because God may speak louder by bringing you trouble. Maybe he already is for you. Will you listen to the correction? Let's move into the uh, second half of the chapter. So the third section of, of my sermon is God still lovingly seeks you back. This is verses 14 to the end of the chapter. Now, I haven't left much time for this, but... We must end on the note the chapter ends on and we must get the contrast of the two halves of the chapter. So although I'm going to have to rush, we must get into this half. But first, I want you to imagine a woman who leaves her husband to go off with a work colleague. And that work colleague, he earns far more than her husband. He's on a salary of 80,000 and he lavishes this woman with gifts. And uh, she really enjoys, as well as him, she enjoys those gifts. And off she goes and leaves her husband. But do you know what happens to that man? He loses his job. And he hasn't got any income. And he can't give her any gifts. And she thinks to herself, well, even my husband's 25,000 he's getting is better than this zero I'm getting now. And so she goes back to her husband. She says, I'm back. I'm back because that man lost his job. (laughs) I'm better off with you, I've realised. Is her husband happy? Does he think, that's great, she's come back to me because I earn more than that man? I don't think so. I don't think that's good enough. And God also wants more than the verse 7 attitude. Do you remember verse 7? Then she will say, I will go back to my husband, i.e. God, uh, as at first, for then I was better off than now. God wants more than us just saying, Well, I think I'd be better off with God. He wants more. And so he goes after his wayward wife. Verse 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. God is going courting the wife who hasn't even yet turned from her cheating. But he's still going after her to court her. He wants to win her love. And he takes her into the desert. Now, that might seem really strange to us, but it's basically like a husband who there's a marriage problem and he takes his wife back to where they had their first date or the place where they first met and fell in love with each other. Because God's taking his wife back to the desert where he first declared his love for this people he rescued from Egypt. And he's going to do it again. He's going to shower her with words of love and gifts of love. And he's going to spend time with her and he's going to serve her. In fact, I think you could almost, in verse 14 and 15, get the whole of the five love languages, if you look carefully. And he wants to win her so that... Well, what does he want her to be like? Let's see. He wants he wants to win her so that she doesn't just reach a business like decision. I would be better off with this God, not that idol. He wants more than that. Verse 15. 
There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. He wants to win her love so she sings for joy like a 20 year old who's head over heels in love. He wants to win her so that how she speaks about him changes. Verse 15. No, sorry, 16. Verse 16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. Now, there's a play on words here that is lost to us, at least if you don't speak Hebrew, because my master in Hebrew is my Baal or Baal. Do you remember that was the name of the idol they worshipped? So God is saying, instead of attributing your riches, your wealth. And by the way, Israel was very rich at this time and very successful. And they were attributing that to Baal. We've worshipped this idol and look what he's given us. God is saying, instead of that, you'll see all the gifts you have come from me. But he's also doing another thing. He's saying, instead of calling me my master, instead of saying, well, look, there's the employer who pays best. So I'll grudgingly go his way. Now, instead, you call me my husband. There won't be just serving me. There will be loving me. God wants to win her so that she'll forsake all the other gods. Verse 17. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. So no longer will their names be invoked. Imagine a wedding. And there's the bride and there's the groom and they're glowing with joy and everyone is beaming as they listen to them saying their vows until it gets to and forsaking all forsaking all others be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. And the bride says, no, actually, I'm not going to say that bit. Oh, yeah, I love him. I want to be married to him, but I don't want to forsake all others. I want to be allowed at least just that one. There he is in the congregation. I want to keep him. Well, the the beaming faces drop straight away. That's really, well, probably put an end to it all. You see, God's insistence of exclusive allegiance to him is not some hard and harsh thing. It's because he's a loving husband. And he wants from us, not just we'll put up with him so we avoid hell. That isn't what he wants from us. He wants more. He wants our love. He wants a singing for joy, affectionate, heartfelt and forsaking all others type of love. And so God enters marriage forever with this woman who's been cheating on him. Verse 19 and 20. Verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. It's the most beautiful love song. And it's sung by God to the woman who's been cheating on him. And it's not just sentimental words. It's actually the serious words of a covenant. These are covenantal words. It's an unbreakable promise. And and it's done the right way. Notice verse 19. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice. He won't just say, I'm strong, I'll have her, I'll take her. You find in chapter three, he'll pay for her. 
If you remember when we were looking at, at chapter one, this is all pictured by Hosea, who actually married a prostitute. And the prostitute ends up a slave and he goes and buys her back. He doesn't just go and force her back. He doesn't just go and say, I'm the strongest man, I'll take her back. Some people say an understandable question. Why did God have to send his son? Why was the cross necessary? God can do everything. He can do anything. Can't he just forgive our sins and take us back? That's it. But that's the action of a tyrant who just says might is right. No, God says, I'll do it the right way in righteousness and justice. I'll pay. I'll fit my character. I'll even meet my law. I'll do everything rightly to get my bride back. And that's described lovely in a lovely way in verse 19 and 20. And how does verse 20 end? Do you notice? <laughs> well, actually, in my Bible, it ends. You will acknowledge the Lord, but it's, it's actually and you will know the Lord. He says to this woman who's been cheating and you will know me. And do you know what the word know means in the Bible? Well, the Bible talks about a husband and a wife knowing each other. In other words, it's the word for sex. The Bible here says God and his people will have the most close and intimate and tender relationship. And then we get verse 21 to 23. I'm rushing through some some wonderful things, but we've got to move through them in that day. Oh, by the way, in that day is very significant language in the prophets. It means what the prophets call the day of the Lord. There's this day of the Lord coming. And in that day, verse 21 to 23 says. The covenant will be restored and God will welcome his bride into the ideal home He's made for her. Well, when will this happen? How will it happen? Who is the one who seeks those who've wandered away? Oh, it's Jesus, the good shepherd. Who is the one who pays to free the enslaved prostitute? Oh, it's Jesus who came to give his life a ransom to free the slaves. Who is the one who betrothes an unworthy woman to be his bride? Oh, it's Jesus, the bridegroom. Who is the one who's gone to prepare a place for us? Oh, you know, don't you? It's Jesus who's at the he's gone to be at the father's right hand. And who will in that day take his bride into his ideal home? Oh, it's Jesus who on the day of the Lord, the last day, will welcome us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you see, this isn't just a book of ancient writings that have been cobbled together in some haphazard way. This is a unified book and it's all about Jesus. Well, we'll end with what this means for us, what this means for us. If we were at church at this point, I'd be trying to figure out if you're still with me or if I need to cut short. But I can't see you through the camera. I hope you're still with me. Please still be with me. I'm going to briefly end with what this means for us do remember this was written firstly to the church the church israel and now the church new testament and revelation tells us about the church in ephesus that was doing the right things 
It was a it was a good, solid, doing the right thing sort of church, but had left her first love. And God doesn't want that we are just keeping doing the right things. Yes, that's good, but it's not good enough. He doesn't want us just to be an organisation that is correct and very active. We should be a church that is looking to him, our husband, to supply all of our needs. Not saying if we're successful in any way is due to our methods, our skills, our cleverness. Look, look how things are going. They're going well. We must be doing something right. No, no. We must have a good husband. Let's stick with him. He wants us to be a church that is reveling and basking in his love. When at last we're able to come back together again, I hope that will be soon. When visitors come into the church, will they find us to be singing like a head over heels in love 20 year old? They should. Because we are so loved and we should be loving back. What about you personally? Does this love attract you? In the latest edition of Evangelicals Now, which is a Christian newspaper that's well worth reading, John Benton describes someone he's been talking to who is persuaded Christianity is helpful for life. Christianity has helpful teachings for life, but this person doesn't believe God is real. They might say, how can that be? I think it can be very easily, actually, that people think here are helpful teachings. Well, it doesn't really matter whether God is real or not. We can be like that. We've got a set of teachings that help. Have you got more than a set of teachings that help? Have you got Jesus as the husband who loves you and you love him? Has his love on the cross won you? Has he come and spoken tenderly to you and won your heart? Is the last verse of chapter two true of you? Verse 23, is this true of you? I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God.